Of course, what they don't realise is that they could be next. Because if you endorse a system that works that way, then nobody's safe. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall at The Spectator. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Laura Dodsworth, who's a journalist, political commentator, author of several books, including A State of Fear, How the UK Government Weaponized Fear During the COVID-19 Pandemic, and Free Your Mind, A New World of Manipulation and How to Resist It, which she co-authored with Patrick Fagan. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. And you know, you also might really enjoy A State of Fear once you read it. I can't wait to, to read it. I might ask you to, to um, uh, sell it to me today. Oh, so, okay. Uh, compel me to read it, although I'm pretty sure I'm going to do it uh, straight away anyway. Um, but let's get into Free Your Mind. It's a wonderful book that not only sort of paints a picture of the the web of um, propaganda instruments, government-associated and uh, non-government um, organizations, mainly in the UK, but also a bit in America, and then incorporating history, deep psychology, literature, you tell the reader how to deal with it, how to shield yourself from it. And I I wanted to, if we may, get into the, the web of propaganda, because this is something I'm seeing all over the place. Not only are we seeing BBC Verify, various disinformation journalists, you get into some some of this. And I thought perhaps we could start with that and, and you could talk to me a bit about the Nudge Unit, which is the behavioral insights team that the, the Cabinet Office set up. And, and um, perhaps this is also something that you go into in a state of fear, I, I imagine it, it is. But what is the Nudge Unit? Well, I'm not quite sure how they would describe themselves. They'd have a really nice, soft, public friendly sounding description on their website, I'm sure. So the Nudge Unit is the Payable Insights team. So what they do is they work with policymakers um, to nudge people, gently incline people towards the so-called right out outcomes to make us model citizens. Um, and they do this mainly using behavioral science, uh, which is choice architecture and nudging. So these aren't supposed to be mandates. This isn't supposed to be about um, sapping fines on people or selling some prison. It's about make, helping us to make choices that are better for us. I think that few people, few people were really alive to what the dangers of this sort of unit were at the beginning. Some people were, but it's because what they did sounded so innocuous and so um, helpful. You know, helping to helping people to quit smoking or organ donation. This is one they made organ donation um, a default option so you have to opt out of it rather than opt in so what happens well you've got more organs available so I mean that sounds great and when they first came out they wrote a document called Mindspace which explains the techniques when did used. they first come out sorry oh um, so it was launched in 2010 under the David Cameron unit at the time it was wholly owned and operated by the government and its directors um, then it changed ownership to be one third owned by Nesta one third owned by the directors, one third owned by the cabinet office. And now it is completely owned by Nesta. So it was sold at the end of 21. Made great profit, tidy profit, of course, for the directors set up at taxpayer expense. It's not the first time that's happened with a public-private partnership. Um, but when they first came out, they talked about how they, they help us lock up the biscuit tins. You know, another thing they might do is work on obesity campaigns. But when they really came to my attention was during the COVID-19 pandemic, because what they were doing was helping to lock us up. Um, they would have been one of the units involved in helping to make the British public comply with what were then completely new draconian lockdown rules. And David Halpin, um, the head of the Nudge unit, sat on the scientific pandemic influenza group for behaviour, Spy B, which is a social scientist that advised the government. And I think he's also on SAGE too. So he's very much at the heart of policy making. Um, I mean, just on him, a couple of interesting things he said in the last few months. I, I can tell you why he doesn't give interviews very often. He drops these amazing clangers that give you a great insight into how they think. So one thing he said a few months ago was that he had actually helped Boris Johnson to realise the virtues of wearing a face covering. And um, he'd used nudging techniques on him, subliminal manipulation 
to a degree. He'd showed him a slide deck of world leaders and they were all wearing face masks. And then it finished with a picture of Boris Johnson not wearing a face mask. So he kind of applauds himself for having got our, our bad leader to do the right thing and wear a face mask. But it's really um, also a tacit admission of using subtle subtle manipulation techniques on, on a leader. And, and, you know, you have to question where the boundaries are between advising the government and, in a sense, helping to set policy. Um, and another thing he said a few weeks ago in an interview with The Telegraph was um, that it had been justified to use fear to frighten, you know, to frighten people during COVID to make them follow the rules because if people are wrongly calibrated, this is quote, there's um, a justification for using fear. And it's interesting language because we don't normally talk about calibrating human beings. We normally talk about calibrating bits of machinery. So there's a sense that, you know, they've got some power, some rights to tinker with people and calibrate them. And the other, I mean, the other big thing that avoids, um, you know, it doesn't even enter his head is what was the evidence base yeah. for um, some of the things, you know, they're, they're big fans of masks, which he even called signals. Um, a lot of what they do is about signals, solidarity, conformity. They're using these biases against us and not always on evidence. Yeah. And one thing that doesn't quite add up is if they are a propaganda unit, so to speak, I'm sure they won't call themselves that. They don't. Uh, but their job isn't to make policy decision then. So where are they getting their ideas from? Why is it? Why is why is he made his decision? Why has Halpern made his decision that masks were good, for example? Wouldn't the government ask him if they have a policy they want ex uh, executed or propagated? Uh, wouldn't they ask that uh, the, the nudge unit to do the propagating? Are they making decisions? Why, why were they in that situation in the first place? I think it's really hard to tell because this all happens behind closed doors. There isn't, I don't think there's enough transparency. They don't publish all their reports and activities, so we don't really know. Um, I think probably there's a lot of groupthink that goes on among social scientists who probably share a lot of ideological and political common ground, which might not be in keeping with the conservative party they're working with. But I, I can't answer that. And, and I, I think that's really because there's enough transparency. Now, they would not call themselves a propaganda unit. However, Simon Ruder, one of the founders of the Pavel Insights team, wrote an article for Unheard. It was a bit of a mea culpa, actually. And he did say that he'd realised that behavioural insights and nudge could be used for propaganda. Huh. And he said that their most egregious mistake had been the amount of fear that they willingly conveyed upon the public. Huh. Um, and you write about them doing collaboration with Sky and other television uh, broadcasters to adopt a hard editorial bias and increase the amount and quality of their climate coverage. Yes. This is another one of the uh, focuses or, or topics that they, they're pushing a, 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 narrative, a narrative on. What, 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 was, what happened there? Yeah, I mean, this is so interesting because when we wrote this book last year, we didn't know just how lurid and doom-mongering all the weather reporting was going to be this summer. You know, they started naming heat waves, haven't they? Cerberus, you know, where do you go from Cerberus if you're starting with the hands that guard the gates of hell? What what can they call the heat wave next summer? Lucifer, you know, where you, where are you going to go? They should have started with something more cozy, like Rosie or Eunice or something. So yeah, they've they've gone. They're, they're pushing they're pushing climate catastrophe uh, very hard this summer, which I imagine is part of that softening us up to decarbonize our lifestyles to further net zero goals. But that report came out in 2021. It's called The Power of TV. And it's how to use television to um, encourage people to decarbonize their lifestyles. And there's something I think was quite incredible about this. It motivated me, along with Toby Young, um, the chair of the Free, Free Speech, Speech Union, Union, to write a letter of complaint to Ofcom, which they didn't uphold because they're a retrospective regulator. No offense had been committed in the writing of this report. What they talked about basically was using the whole gamut of Sky's programming from news, news, you heard that right, weather reports, children's programming, drama, documentaries, even techniques like inserting characters and storylines and product placement into all of this programming to make people aware of the extent of climate change and what they can do about it. Now, we're used to propaganda in other countries, you know, we, we think of propaganda on TV as the, as the preserve maybe of um, communist or authoritarian countries. And it's quite a surprise to see a report published here in this country um, about a unit which was owned one third by the government collaborating with a licensed broadcaster 
on how to change our mind about a subject which we're told the science is settled but is clearly still contentious to further a political goal because in its area is a political goal. And this is propaganda. You know, that, that is propaganda. Well, Whether... we saw this only last, uh, what, uh, last week, a couple of weeks ago with the Greek fires where uh, the uh, huge stories went out that th these this was climate change when actually it turns out it was arsonists. The fact is that the fires by square miles across the, across the world over the last 120 years has decreased dramatically from 1.9 million square miles to 1.4 million square miles. The reality of that is completely hidden. And, and, and let's say a week later, you get the story, oh, actually, it was human arsonists who, who started these fires. But by that point, people have moved on from the story, so they don't see that. So then you just have the climate agenda, climate catastrophe um, narrative promulgated even more. So there are lots of techniques that are at play, and we describe some of these in the book. That's one of our routes to helping people free their mind is to describe techniques that are used in propaganda and nudge. So one there is salience. When some very novel information is presented to you, like a big number, you take notice. So you'll, you'll recall that there were predicted temperatures. We were being told that temperatures would get up to 48. Then it doesn't matter if the temperature gets up to 48 or not. The number's gone into your head. Modelling. So um, the number of heat-related deaths was modelled could say made up was that um on the day or within 28 days of a, a hot day well and then they sorry ignore shouldn't the... joke <laughs> but you know it's it's modeling but it creates a big number so you've got that big number yeah. in your head um everything was very visual you saw lots of uh photographs and video of forest fires i mean to to an extent it's hard i think these days for people not to be conspiracy theorists and in inverted commas when there are all these forest fires that um politicians and policymakers and public health people say this is undeniably caused by climate change and then a week later um the involvement of arsonists is admitted but because there's a kind of a truthiness effect um from photographs and videos that affects you emotionally much more than just the written word which is why one of our items of advice in the book is to read information rather than watch videos if you want to more dispassionately absorb and analyze the information because you'll get more carried away by the videos. Um, so yeah, there are, there are a lot of techniques that we can see at play at the moment, which are clearly designed to soften up for net zero policies. We, we talk about the environment in the book, which isn't to say we wanted to convey our own position on climate change. Um, I don't think Patrick and I have thought everything through ourselves I couldn't yet. say I know what your position is on climate change from reading the book. But I'm really glad you think so, because we didn't want to talk about our position on climate change or anthropogenic climate change or what the proposed solutions should be. I mean, some people might think this um, collaboration between the Nudge Unit and Sky is brilliant because, and there are people that do think that, because they think we should all be urged, urged towards making changes to prevent climate catastrophe. But the question is, you know, if you think these ends justify the means, will you think so for future campaigns? Will you think so for all types of propaganda? We want people to recognise the techniques that are used so they, they can arm themselves against manipulation because it's a very current example, but it's not the only time that governments, nudge units and broadcasters are going to collaborate to change your mind and change your behaviour. One of the forms of manipulation, you mentioned their conspiracy theories, but and as I've already used the words already in, in this conversation a few times, disinformation, misinformation, and another one that keeps coming up is countering hate speech. All of this language means it's very difficult for you to, you're kind of entrapped by the language yes. to, to overcome it. And that seems like one of the techniques yeah. to shut down debate. Yeah. So it's using a false binary, um, a choice, which is either the information we're told is correct and is morally virtuous or to be a questioner. So the language, I think, is very deliberate. So um, the Centre for Countering Digital Hate for instance, we'll talk about Musk in a recent story as being, you know, effectively pro-hate. Because if you're not anti-hate, what are you? You're pro-hate. So they create this polarization there. You're either with the goodies or with the baddies. False dichotomy, yeah. It's a false dichotomy, sure. And um, in the case of, say, climate change, you know, if you ask questions, you are a climate change denier. And it's, you know, it's not hard to see how denier is supposed to evoke Holocaust denial, which is 
something we, we mustn't be guilty of. So you don't put yourself in, in that camp. So there's a lot of smearing by association. Yeah, COVID denier is another one. It's a, yeah. it's a direct reference uh, uh, to uh, deliberately invoking the Holocaust, which is actually a pretty disgusting thing to do, I think. Um, you mentioned Elon Musk's case against the Center for Countering Digital Hate. The Center for Countering Digital Hate seems to me to be one of these organizations that would fit nicely into your book as the picture of the web of, of uh, quote-unquote, propaganda units. Now, the, the, Musk is suing them because uh, he claims that they're making baseless claims about increased hate speech, which are harming Twitter and putting off sponsors. Um, and so the CCDH... They have, uh, it's an international organization, and it, it, this it is uh, being based in D.C., but Damien Collins, who is a Tory MP, is on the uh, board. Do you think Musk can win this this fight against them? Or should we be concerned about such an organization? Mm, I don't know much about them, but I've, they've come on my radar before. So the first thing to say is we've got to be aware of false binaries even in a story like this, because things in the news are set up to polarize us. Because clicks, headlines, they run on emotion, engagement and conflict. That's how social media works. It's designed to create engagement through debate and anger and conflict. One, one way in which researching and writing Free Mind has changed me is it's made me a little bit more humble. I don't always know what the right answers are. And I think we should try and advance understanding between different parties. So without knowing the ins and outs of this case, it may be that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. But you can see how the narrative can be spun either way. So um, Elon Musk can be accused of lawfare, of using his his money to squash the David to his Goliath. Um, on the other hand, when you look at CCDH, it's interesting what kind of campaigns they're preoccupied with. They do seem to be quite closely aligned with the interests of states. So um, anti-vax and climate change denial are two of their big campaigns. I don't see them running a campaign to prevent misinformation in the realms of, say, saying that men can't get pregnant. You know, their interests often run in particular directions, so there's that. And, you know, they're very keen on climate change denial being labelled or flagged as misinformation on Facebook. Now, this all sounds really worthy until you think, well, who's fact-checking the fact-checkers? What do we know is correct information and what isn't? COVID is this great case study um, that illuminates how something that is considered a fact within a couple of years isn't. I mean, there's a theory of facts called the half-life of facts, that in any discipline, what you think of as a fact will um, change in its status. I think in psychology, it's about seven years. So the Wuhan lab leak, labelled absolutely firmly by fact-checkers, media and politicians and public health scientists as a conspiracy theory, now thought to be plausible. So we have to be really careful about being so sure that information should be labelled as misinformation or disinformation. When Facebook label posts that way, they know that they reduce engagement by about 85%. Ah, okay. So if you were to share an article um, about climate change that Facebook's Climate Change Resource Centre, whatever it's called, considers to be misinformation, it might not take it down, it might just label it as misinformation, and then you'll get a lot less clicks. So on actually, the people, that would suggest that people believe the fact checkers. They, they, do. they believe these these groups like the CCDH, yeah. um, BBC Verify would be another one, and, and they actually have a power. Of course. Um, and part of the reason for that is another bias we talk about in the book, which is the authority bias. We're, we're, we naturally have a shortcut psychologically to believe and obey authorities. But sometimes the man behind the curtain is not a great wizard. He's just a little man with a pair of glasses and the... Um, the emperor wore no clothes and was naked. Our leaders can be fallible. We shouldn't always invest so much authority in them. But it's a bias. Where it's a bias that is just kind of hardwired into us. Um, but a similar organisation, the ISD, in their submission to the, Who are the ISD? Institute for Strategic Dialogue, uh -huh. they're in the same kind of space as CCDH. And in their submission um, for the online safety bill, they seemed quite rattled that a video by Brendan O'Neill, who's um, from Spiked, was viewed many more times than one by David Attenborough. And Brendan O'Neill was talking about um, politicians at COP26 being hypocrites for turning up in private jets. And, you know, you see people in this space really don't like that. They want the David Attenborough video to do well. And rather than engage with why people might be angry about hypocrisy 
or why they might have scepticism and why they might be right to be sceptical. They want to just label it all as misinformation to try to reduce engagement with it. So I don't know the internet's of this CCDH case, but I have a suspicion, I think a lot of people will share or resonate with people that what they really don't like is free speech because there are certain sorts of speech they don't agree with and they want to just turn the volume down on it. Um, do you, this is something I see and I've been particularly alarmed by BBC Verify and it's, it seems like on a weekly basis now some in, invariably some disinformation correspondent will write an article calling disinformation but that article itself will include misinformation. What, what's your take on BBC Verify? Do you, do you think it's it, it can it, it has any value at all, any merit? I'm inherently a little bit suspicious of any fact-checking service because nobody can escape ideological and political bias. That goes for me too. I mean, obviously, I want everyone to read my book, but they should be sceptical about me too. We should be sceptical about everybody's biases. There's no such thing as neutrality. So going back to CCDH... I know that they were involved in the counter-disinformation policy forum that was working with the government's counter-disinformation unit, which is a very shadowy organisation that was surveilling and censoring people for lawfully held views. They say they don't monitor political debate. It's obvious from subject access requests that they do. So I have a little bit of a suspicion about these units that work um, furtively with the government to monitor lawfully held opinions and the free exchange of information. Um, I think we have to be aware there are certain people that see themselves as part of a priest caste of truthhood. Um, and I don't worship that religion. I, you know, to write a book like this, you have to believe that everyone should have agency and sovereignty of, of their own mind and trust people to be able to absorb information and make of it what they will. Um, there's one example of... Um, BBC's approach to truth, I'd like to mention. So propaganda happens in wars. Wars are always accompanied by propaganda and, and lies. It's part of the terrain, isn't it? But do you remember um, a character called the Ghost of Kiev? He was a fighter pilot who shot down an unfeasible number of Russian planes. What's interesting about this war, the Russia-Ukraine war, is it's the first time that we're told during a war that the propaganda is propaganda. You know, the Ukrainian authorities admitted after some weeks, months, that the ghost of Kiev was fictitious. Now, and it's being spun as a positive thing. Yeah. It's like it's not an embarrassment. It's it's like this is a good kind of propaganda. Exactly. So it's a bit like the sniper of Stalingrad. But we're saying during the war, he's not real. He's like the Santa Claus of the Ukraine-Russia war. He's giving people hope. So the BBC wrote an article about this. And they didn't call it misinformation. They, they did not call the ghost of Kiev misinformation. Instead, it was an article justifying why myth and legend during war is important. So I think we've entered an age of myth information, not, <laughs> not misinformation. It's just an interesting plot twist in propaganda. I, I actually think there's something about social media that is making us all propagandists. We are so tolerant of lying ourselves that we come to expect lies in general online. I mean, think about your own social media posts. I, I, I tell you what, don't you think about yours. I'm not going to pin it on you. I'll think about mine. Yeah, I was going to ask, how are you a propagandist then? Okay. Um, if I take a selfie, I post the best one. You know, if I take five, I post the best one. Of course I do. Sometimes I apply a little filter on Instagram. I'm sorry, hands up. I do. Something that smooths the skin a little bit, maybe. I'm trying not to, but I do. I don't share my low moments. I don't show the days when nothing happens or if I feel down or if I get a knockback. I share the highs, the successes, the good points. So in that sense, I'm my own propagandist. And I think it's not surprising that in that, you know, it's in that context that we've got conditions like Snapchat dysmorphia, where people go to surgeons to say they want to look like their selfie. This is a thing. Or even that we're in the age of furries, where people... Um, believe that they can identify as the animals, the animal which, you know, the ears they've stuck on themselves in, in Snapchat. You know, we're really blurring the lines between fantasy and reality, a blurring which is only going to get worse when you bring in Apple goggles and the metaverse. But it's more than that. I think because we don't tolerate 
truth from ourselves because social media allows us to bend the truth. It's like a kind of a reverse Dorian Gray portrait. I think we're becoming more tolerant of lies in general. And so, you know, you can be in a war and go, oh, yeah, sure, goes to Kiev, made up, but that's fine. It's a good thing. We might be more tolerant of lies, uh, I said, possibly, but it's there's a difference between people using Instagram to post selfies and journalists who have a responsibility to assimilate and and digest as much information about a story as possible and present it, including the anomalies, with a, as little spin as possible, obviously excluding like op-heads. The idea that BBC Verify even exists is ludicrous to me because they're journalists, so, so they should be checking everything they publish as being true or not true. Why do they have then a BBC Verify arm? Were they not doing that already? Mm. Well, I think we see some more biases coming into play here. Things like motivated reasoning, the my side bias, cultural mediation hypothesis. So, What's cultural mediation hypothesis? Well, so this is like the idea of luxury beliefs. Um, let me take you back to the Weimar Republic. Um, doctors were the most represented profession that joined the Nazi party. This isn't in any way to disparage doctors. They're great people. They're doing a good job. But I'm just saying that half of doctors joined the Nazi party early. And I think they were more than they were seven times more represented than other professions. Okay. I think now there's quite an onus on people to hold certain um, liberal views because according to the cultural mediation hypothesis, we understand what values are dominant and it behoves us to take them on, to absorb them so that we get on in life. Basically, if people appear to think and act the same, then they do better. That's why you can have, um, you know, clearly very well-to-do people living in metropolitan centres of world cities, believing things like men can be women and women can be men and all wearing the same sandals. Um, so that's the cultural mediation hypothesis. And then according to motivated reasoning, sometimes really clever people are capable of... Um, being manipulated you know no one's no one's invulnerable to manipulation and the more you think you are according to Jung the more vulnerable you are to it so people who are clever are often very good at justifying why they hold the views they do and using logic to justify an emotionally held belief people don't like other people um stepping away from the group this is our social conformity bias we like to be light, we like to be right, and we don't, some people really have a very low tolerance for people expressing different views. And so they will um, find some logic to justify this strongly held emotional sense that they have. You actually mentioned this in the book, that there's a correlation of pe people with higher IQ who fall short of being exceptionally high outlier IQs are more susceptible to brainwashing than people with lower IQs. They can be. I mean, there are studies that go in different directions, but unfortunately, really clever people are absolutely brilliant at justifying the beliefs they hold. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was literally away with the fairies. You know, this is a very intelligent man, fantastic author. He believed fairies were real. He conducted supposedly scientific research into seances, probably motivated by the fact he'd lost his son in the war. Perhaps, again, it was due to the time he was living in. Um, you know, they're dark times. And maybe he was looking for the lightness of the magic in life. I can't tell you why I believed in fairies, but, you know, even the girls that posed said it wasn't real and they couldn't believe he believed that this, this picture of fairies was real. He was totally taken in by it, and he's an intelligent man. So we've, we've looked at the nudge unit. You mentioned the CDU, and actually I, I interviewed Tony Diver recently, who was the Telegraph reporter who uh, covered that story, um, a part of the investigation, investigative team there um, to expose the CDU stuff. And I know Big Brother Watch have done a bunch of that, but there's another um, unit that we haven't touched on, which I'd love some insight into, which is the RICU, the Research Information, Information and Communications Unit, um, which is a UK government one. What, what, did, what do you know about this unit and how are they operating? Well, we don't know very much about the unit because obviously they don't talk about what they do publicly. Um, in the case of the CDU, they never answer MPs' questions or freedom of information requests. But the Research Information and Communication Unit will employ other agencies, so third parties, who will then work with other agencies like grassroots organisations 
so that sometimes the people that are um, creating websites or working in charities don't know that they're a couple of steps removed from the government. Um, they do work like um, Prevent, ISIS-Eyes, I think, was through the Research Information Communication Unit. So it's a bit shadowy and we don't know too much about what they do. But the problem with that, of course, is that it's not accountable. The government's not accountable. And there are people who are working with the government by separation of a degree or two, and they don't know that they're doing that. Okay, and they're using a model called Mindspace? That's the nudge unit who that's uses Mindspace, unit. yeah. Okay. So um, that's an acronym for different psychological biases that are exploited to make you change your behavior. So the M in Mindspace would be messenger. Um, we're more likely to do what we're told if somebody we like and respect tells us to do it. So that would be... Um, an example would be celebrities posting their vaccines on Instagram, their selfies when they were being vaccinated. That's an example of using the messenger in oh, Mindspace. That's so cringe. <laughs> I remember First that. First time we've <laughs> seen that, isn't it? Um, celebrities being vaccinated on Instagram. Yeah, it's so, so bizarre. Do you think that um, Sadiq Khan's mate campaign ties into this manipulation? I saw that. It was only a couple of weeks ago. And it seemed to me that they're now trying to, you know, that all these different units to police what we're doing online. Now it seems like they're trying to encourage us to police us within our own friend groups. What is, do you think that that campaign sort of ties into what you're describing in this, this, uh, this sort of manipulation? Absolutely. I mean, I've got to say, bringing the book out now, during all of the heatwave hysteria and with the mate campaign is a bit of a gift. The problem is this campaign's happening every month, which is sneakily manipulating you i hate the mate campaign <laughs> for every reason first of all he's ruined the word mate because now when i hear it you think mate makes me feel like i'm a sheep you know that elongated word meh it's it's it, it's really kind of herd like the other thing is they elongated the vowel and added the sharp t to get your attention and that will remind you of dog training barbara woodhouse used to teach people to get their dog to sit by saying sit so it's literally treating us like Pavlov's dogs. You know, here's the bell, salivate. Um, it's, it's everything to do with behavioural science. It's another that should work because it's predicated on sound behavioural science principles, social conformity. The group in that interactive ad is showing you how to behave. Um, and then there's one renegade who's not behaving well, who makes the off-colour smutty jokes. I think the worst thing he says, because I tried to watch the whole cringeworthy campaign is I'm defo in the mood for some spicy breasts now uh, I, I, ser I seriously want to say to Sadiq Khan mate is this is this the worst you think you've got to worry about in London regarding crime or violence against women that a, some young lad is saying to his friends spicy breasts is that um, anyway what that does is tap into a kind of responsabilization so instead of turning the lens back onto his met police or knife crime in London He's pointing the finger at you. What are you doing wrong? How are you talking to each other? And you're right, of course, it comes straight into our living rooms. You know, that ad is a group of young men in a living room talking amongst themselves, playing video games. They don't touch a woman. They don't say anything to a woman. It's just a bit of banter. And it's pretty harmless banter, so far as I can tell. You know, you may object to that banter, but if you do object to it and you like this ad, the natural progression is that we should be policing each other. And I think there's something really insidious about that. I mean, it's for me, it's quite um, reminiscent of the Scottish government's hate crime bill, which is probably the most controversial piece of legislation the government's ever passed, that the government should have a say in what, what you say in your own home, in the privacy of your own home. When Sadiq does this mate thing, I'm sure you and I might be in sort of various social media bubbles that see a backlash against this. But and, and this is kind of a question that I think is for your whole book and, and, and to an audience you're trying to find to help people not be brainwashed. But is it the case that actually a lot of people are quite happy with disinformation and hate speech being tackled, that they don't mind at this censorship, that they don't mind that we're even policing each other within our own social groups? Is that something you're concerned about? Well, I think that's because what it is doing is exploiting our own biases mercilessly against, mercilessly against us. We are herd animals. We do like conforming. Uh, social conformity is about wanting to be liked and wanting to be right and 
Sometimes that involves punishing people whose views don't fit in. And a lot of people enjoy that. Of course, I think that's something that we should challenge. There are some very sound evolutionary reasons for it, but we should be aware when it's being used against us. But of course, journalists are no exception to that. Um, Think about the the Nigel Farage Coots dossier. So there were um, commentators saying, well, it's just Nigel Farage um, being debanked by um, a very prestigious bank. Who cares, basically? He's just not wealthy enough. You know, they were really reveling in that. And after the dossier came out, did you see many of them say, oh, we got that wrong, actually? This is dangerous, compiling dossiers and other people. Of course, what they don't realise is that they could be next. Because if you endorse a system that works that way, then nobody's safe. And, I mean, this is a, a kind of... This is a problem with people I just keep coming back to. And it's why I wrote Free Your Mind after A State of Fear. State of Fear was very much a, this is the state we're in book, and this is what the state's doing to us. It's quite gloomy to observe and analyse and write about how your own government is manipulating using propaganda and using fear, even if it's supposedly, supposedly in your best interests during a pandemic. But then I thought, well, it was, it was depressing to see it, to see um, this mass evocation of fear and compliance and people turn on each other and snitch. There are how many was something like 100,000 cases of neighbours reporting on their neighbours in the first few months of COVID. I forget the exact number, but it was six figures. It was really serious. So it was depressing. And it, and it, I think I've been in a bit of an existential crisis ever since. You know, what does it mean to be human? What are we made of? What makes some people speak out and not others? Um, how do we resist this manipulation? Hence, free your mind, which is supposed to give people agency and offer the hope that I have because all of the things that are used against us are also part of our strengths. And so while there are those who go, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're herd animals. We use that against them in this ad, you know, 99 billion burgers served or eight out of 10 cats prefer whiskers or government propaganda at the other end of the scale. We're also founts of creativity, ingenuity, um, love, faith, all these good things. And that's our default. That's what I believe our default is. I don't think our default is when people rise up um, in compliance or hysteria or cruelty. That can be done to us. We can go along with it, but I don't believe it's our default. What would you say to the person, so your audience might, uh, who, are, who are, have an inclination that they're being manipulated, this book is definitely for them. But for the for the person who thinks, I've got nothing to worry about, this people who are against hate speech or against disinformation, I, I support the climate agenda. I support the uh, vaccines agenda. I support all of this. I don't, I, I, I've got, I, you know, I've, I see clearly. To those people, why should they re- read your book? Well, we've been talking about the government a lot um, and propaganda, and that's probably because of some shared interests in that terrain. But this book is not about that. I mean, one chapter advises people to be sceptical of Big Brother and gives you lots of reasons why. So if you're not sure if there's any basis for your mistrust, Read that chapter. Learn about MK Ultra, for instance. Um, the term conspiracy theorist is used deliberately to shut down question and dissent. One of our bolder recommendations is people should let go of their fear of it. You know, it's designed to stop you asking questions. But it's really not just about the government. Um, if you're concerned about online disinformation, you're probably concerned about your relationship with your phone. You know, 83% of the world has a smartphone. We pick it up up to 80 times a day. It's a wash. Of course it's a wash with misinformation and disinformation. All those social media platforms are designed to be addictive. Think about Twitter. It uses the slot machine effect. You know, you read your Twitter and then you're like, oh, I wonder if there's anything new since I got to the bottom. You use your finger, you pull down. It's very satisfying, just like slot machines in casinos. You get those coloured hearts and you get pings and dings from the moment you wake up. And then a lot of people will doom scroll all through their social media before they go to bed. So there's a chapter on social media manipulation is something that's completely inherent to human beings and and first of all we need to get over that you know manipulation is language that's what we do we talk to each other you know if i say to you at the end of this today you know thanks for having me have a nice day i really do mean for you to have a nice day i'm trying to influence you this book is about influencing people to resist influence but sometimes that oversteps the line and people don't want to be unduly influenced so whether that's the car salesman 
um, or the person trying to flog you dating videos or the course you've seen that's supposed to improve your, your, your life or even the place of worship you go to or the music concert. All of these places use different techniques of manipulation that it would behove you to be aware of. The other thing is the online environment. So have you ever decided that you don't want the cookies on a website and you go through this incredibly long, difficult form and then at the end you you tick the I don't want any cookies button and you realise you didn't, you ticked the really big button that said accept all cookies and you're like, damn, I did the whole thing and I pressed the wrong button at the end. Or you're online shopping. Oh, I can give you an example. I was shopping for a dress yesterday. It's a dress that I won't wear till next year, but I'm looking already, having fun. And I saw that 26 people were looking at it, which is social conformity, but there are only five left, which is scarcity. Because I understand these biases and how they're built into me, I can see that this website's playing a little game with me. I don't know if it's true or not. Let's say that 26 people really are looking and there's only five left. Maybe I should get on and buy it, but it's trying to rush me into a decision. And then maybe you buy something online and you think you know what the price is, but it's added something else on. And then you get to the till and another thing's been added on. That's drip pricing. There are all kinds of techniques that are used online. You don't even need to know what all the techniques are. We explained some of them. You need to understand the biases they're exploiting. And this is of such concern that even the government's investigating it. The Competition and Markets Authority is investigating how online choice architecture reduces competition, reduces your outcomes, makes pricing higher. So even for the person who thinks the government's brilliant and there's no such thing as propaganda and they love all the agendas we've talked about, you should understand that your own British government and the US government are investigating these practices online. I also assume, given the title, that you must think your mind, your your own mind, Laura, is is free. I, firstly, how can you be sure that your mind is really free? Secondly, if it is free, when did you have your awakening? Um, well, I had a big epiphany in COVID, which is why I wrote State of Fear, because seeing people's fear upon steroids by the government and seeing people comply with laws that I never thought I'd see in my life you know, the almost intimate rights of life being affected. You know, there were men who didn't go to the birth of their baby and people who died alone and restricted funerals and weddings were called off those things as well as not sending our children to school. You know, every aspect of our life was intruded upon and I'd never seen anything like it before. I realised my freedom was an illusion. So it really got me thinking about psychology, the nature of humanity, religion, faith, politics. It started a lot for me. But I don't think my mind is free. Oh, no. In fact, by researching this book and writing it, I think my mind has become freer, but I also accept the impossibility of having a completely free mind. As John Donne said, no man is an island because we're all involved in humanity. But what you can do is, as an island, recognise that the waves are going to lap at the shore, but you can separate yourself from a continent of manipulation, extending that metaphor. No, I mean, I thought about a time I was scammed, um... It's kind of low-level thing, but do you remember on Twitter during the first lockdown that there was news that Woolworths was reopening on the high street? You wrote about this in your book. So I retweeted that instantly. I didn't look into it. I didn't notice a spelling mistake in the tweet because it really spoke to nostalgia and hope. You know, we were in this really depressing time. There were gloomy reports about the high street being massacred. And, you know, it brought back Pick and Mix, the first records I bought, and some hope for the high street, so I shared it. And then I felt like a right idiot when people were crowing hours later, look at all the stupid people that fell for the scam. So, of course, manipulation often rests upon our fears and our hopes, which is why there's a chapter in the book advising that people stop haunting themselves because half of the, the problem is the messaging, but half of the problem is you because it plays upon your fears your hopes, your personal emotional landmines that might be unique to you. You know, that corset out on Facebook is not going to bother you if you've got a healthy body image. Um, you're more likely to buy the life insurance if you're if you're worried about your children's futures. It's, it's going to play upon you. So it's the work of a lifetime. And look, I'm only 50. I've, hopefully I've got lots of life left. So I've got lots of understanding myself um, and lots of self-haunting to relinquish. But I would say that after this book, I swung too far the other way. I think I became really hypervigilant about language. I really noticed a lot of linguistic techniques that people use unconsciously. You know, I couldn't be on 
the on hold to my bank without noticing the nudges in the pre-record, I saw nudging and manipulation everywhere, and I've relaxed a bit from that. In fact, I'd say I've got to a place when I choose almost almost to give myself over to manipulation. I know that if I go to a concert, you know, or you know, a festival, being tired, hungry, thirsty, listening to loud music and drumming, and you know is going to put me into a more suggestible frame of mind. But I can go and do it because I've chosen to do it. And I know how to kind of pick myself back up afterwards. Are there any specific topics that your mind was changed in the writing of this book? Um, I realised how much I don't know. Um, so I feel as though that in the years I've got left, I've got a lot more reading and education to do. I've realised that my social media addiction is off the scale, awful. Um, I am no paragon of virtue. I have to address my social media addiction. It has made me go back to reading on the printed page. I was kidding myself that by listening to audiobooks, I was still a great reader. I don't take it in nearly as well. If you want to absorb information, you really need the printed word for, lot, for lots of reasons. So I'm, I'm reading books again. Um, my concentration span's been shot by social media. But that said, I feel like I can use it a lot more mindfully because I understand more about how algorithms work, how the platforms are designed not to be neutral, but to um, reflect your own interests. You know, they reflect back at you the kind of echo chambers you're in, but also the way they prioritize content, deprioritize content. I don't believe that those top search results on Google are totally impeccably neutral. Um, I understand how the platforms are addictive. I'm engaging with it more mindfully, and that's helpful. So that's changed me. Um, and it's, I think, probably the biggest fundamental thing is it's made me more open-minded to religion, strangely. So I've always had faith, um, but it's made me more open-minded to adopting adopting a code of conduct and a set of principles. Our final chapter of the book is called Stand for Something. And the reason for that is if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Look at the waves of followership you get on Twitter. You know, you see emojis swap out one after the other. You get the face mask and then a Ukraine flag. Oh, there's BLM. You get the, the pride rainbow. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't follow those things or they shouldn't indicate their support. But it's almost like you see people following the next current thing. And I think that's because we're alive in a time of um, moral vacuum and post-religious vacuum, post-modern vacuum. And so people are adrift and they're looking for something to hold on to. So it's really important to decide for yourself before you're just sucked up by the next thing what your values are. So I've understood the place of religion more, which is no great um, controversial new thing. It's why people have gone to church. Quite controversial in some circles. Yeah, but it's why people have gone to church on the same day of the week every week forever. Um, or they join the Boy Scouts or they join an allotment club because being in a community of like-minded people and adopting a set of principles of one form or another is an anchor in an uncertain world. If you don't mind me asking a personal question, which you don't have to answer, but what what took you from seeing that there's a, a void, uh, uh, we're trying to fill a void of, and that's why all these sort of pseudo-religions are coming in, as you mentioned, to that literal leap of faith to a religion. I, I don't know which religion you're referring to, um, but uh, how have you made that leap? Oh, the Jedi one. No, only kidding. Um, <laughs> well, I've read quite a lot of Jung in um, the research for this book, and he talks about self-individuation. So what makes strong societies and communities is strong individuals. And Self-individuation almost sounds like a dirty word these days, like it involves being selfish. But that's not true at all. It's about finding meaning in your life, and that can come from meaningful work. Not everyone's got that luxury. Some people are doing just jobs to pay the bills. It could be meaningful work, meaningful relationships, meaning in your community, and meaningful faith or religion. That said, of course, religion isn't necessarily guaranteed to save you. Religions can become captured by woke ideologies too. I, I find it a bit ironic that as I've had a bit of a road to Damascus moment, the church is having a road to Davos moment. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying that a religion should reflect back what I'm interested in, but it's it's changing at the moment, isn't it? It's adapting to a new world. Um, 
so I think I do have quite a strong set of morals and principles. It's my belief about myself. But realizing that people need a kind of crucible for morality and values made me understand the value of religion. And, and I thought, well, you know, I should walk the walk and talk the talk. So I started going to church. Um, my co-author is doing the same thing. That's not necessary to say that we've just been baptized and confirmed and, you know, embarking on a new life. But we're trying it. We're, we're both trying a lot of things, actually, since writing. But one thing I've also realized the value of what another way it's changed me is being open minded. I'm a lot more open minded and I'm trying to challenge my beliefs. So I've always been a confirmed carnivore. But it's the kind of thing where vegetarians will say, oh, well, if you had to kill the animal, you wouldn't do it. So, yeah, I challenged that this year. I went to a small holding and was trained by the farmer in how to kill, butcher and eat a couple of birds myself, you know, trying to challenge my own um, assumptions. I'm still a carnivore, though. I'm glad to hear it. Um, but it's good to experiment. Um, well, um, uh, it's been very interesting hearing about this journey you've been on. And um, I wonder where you think it might take you next. Will the next book be about religion? Well, maybe in a manner of speaking, um, it'll be about death. I think my next book's about death because actually I was I was pitching a book about death to my publisher when he asked what else I was working on and I explained I was writing an in-depth article about the government using fear and his ears just pricked up and he said, is this a book? And he persuaded me and it became a book. And then I really wanted to write this book about death, but I had this urge to follow on from a state of fear. Because seeing how easy it is for everyone to be manipulated, you know, including me, it's not just Woolworths. There's plenty of times I've had the, um, I've been hoodwinked and manipulated. I think that that's, um, it's just of absolute paramount importance right now. If you think, you know, we talked before about uh, the state of society, you know, there's a lot of books you, you can read and they really resonate and you feel like civilization's in decline and democracy's going down the drain and it's very depressing that it's only what to do next. I thought, well, if society really is in free fall, everyone's got to put their oxygen mask on. You know, you do your own oxygen mask first. So first of all, understand how you're being manipulated. And after that, everything is better. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs where he puts food, water and air at the bottom. I don't think that's true. I think if you have those things, but you can't think for yourself, you're a slave. First, before everything is free thinking. We talk a lot about free speech, and thank goodness we do. I love the work of the Free Speech Union, but what value is free speech if you don't know how to think freely? And to think freely, you have to understand when other people are trying to get into your brain and finger around and manipulate your thinking and your behavior. So it all starts with free thinking. I think it's the basic pillar of what we need need to do to get everything else back on track well on that note if listeners and viewers concerned with people fingering in their brains <laughs> this is the book for them uh free your mind um uh, and laura where can people find you uh in 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 the world in the in the ether world in the world of misinformation disinformation i'm on way too much that world so on twitter my natural habitat I'm at Bear Reality. Bear is spelled like naked, not the bear. And my website's lauradodsworth.com. And obviously I'm on Amazon and all good bookshops. Laura Dodsworth, thank you so much for speaking with me today. 